Welcome to The Current, a podcast produced by We Stand for Energy. We Stand for Energy is a community that supports a reliable, affordable, and sustainable energy future for everyone. It is a project of EEI, Edison Electric Institute, the National Trade Association representing U.S. investor-owned electric companies. My name is Brad Viator, Executive Director of External Affairs at EEI, and I'm your host. In this week's episode, I'm joined by my colleague, Caitlin Williams, the Senior Manager of Political and External Affairs at EEI, who's going to give us a broad overview of electric companies engaging in the community amid the COVID crisis. Then later, I'll be joined by Nancy Moody, the Vice President of Public Affairs at DTE, who will give us a more in-depth example of one way her company has engaged with the community. First, Caitlin, can you tell me a little about electric company community engagement at a high level? Thank you, Brad. At the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, we activated our corporate social responsibility group and the responses we received from members with stories of ways they quickly and creatively rose to the challenge of supporting their employees and customers. And electric companies are providing very real community support. The support our industry is providing largely, it fits into three main categories, which would be food assistance for those in need, partnership with community partners, including government officials, and even assisting frontline healthcare workers. What are some of the examples of novel projects that electric companies are engaging in? So we've seen our members pledge financial support in partnership with local food banks so they can continue the great work they're doing in communities, and especially for at-risk seniors and children, which are two groups who are disproportionately affected by this crisis that we're all in right now. And together, our industry is making technology available for students who, without additional support, would not be able to participate in online classes. As you know, all schools have been suspended for the rest of the semester. And in a few communities, we've also seen companies step up to provide school lunch delivery services and Wi-Fi hotspots for students that wouldn't otherwise be able to continue their education and join their peers in these online classes. And in addition to supporting community members so they can stay home and help us slow the spread of coronavirus, our industry is also assisting frontline healthcare workers who cannot stay home. Our industry has donated face masks and in some cases we've even seen companies reformatting their 3D printers to produce face shields for healthcare workers. And we've even seen some companies have partnered with local government officials and healthcare workers to set up additional testing sites, whether that be electrifying a parking lot over a long weekend to make sure that community members are able to get tested close to home. And through support and partnerships with local groups like United Way, our electric companies are continuing to support these groups by configuring the way they're providing grants. In some cases where industry typically supports in-person events, instead we're providing less restrictive grants to support those who are actually running these local community programs. Thanks, Caitlin. How can listeners learn more about what specific companies are doing? I'd invite you to check out our community engagement social feed on our We Stand for Energy website under the COVID-19 response page. And we have created a community engagement social feed that pulls from Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and press releases from our electric companies highlighting the individual ways they are working with their community partners to support their employees and customers. And I think if you'll check it out, you'll see there's great photos of our employees actually out rolling in bucket trucks and making sure the power stays on and finding ways to stay engaged. 
Thanks, Caitlin. You can find all that information of uh, what specific companies are doing in that social feed that Caitlin referenced on the We Stand for Energy website, COVID industry response page right below where many of you found the podcast. Now I'd like to turn the conversation over to Nancy Moody, the Vice President of Public Affairs at DTE. Thank you, Brad, and uh, thank you, EEI, for doing these series and for inviting me. I am a 32-year career employee at DTE Energy, having been hired way back in 1988 when we were the plain vanilla electric company, Detroit Edison. Detroit Edison hired me because I was serving as the chief of staff in the Michigan Senate for the Senate Majority Floor Leader, where, of course, as you all know at EEI, you learn how to make policy that can change lives and you build relationships so that you can get the uh, requisite number of votes in order to adopt those policies. So it was a great fit for what Detroit Edison was looking for. My career evolved primarily in Lansing as the company evolved, the career evolved. I eventually moved out to Washington, D.C., where I ran our federal affairs office and got to know you, Brad, and a number of our colleagues at EEI. And then, uh, just four years ago, was asked to come back to Detroit to our headquarters and become the vice president of public affairs. So that's kind of my journey at DTE, but at the same time my career was evolving, certainly Detroit Edison was evolving. And as I said, we were an electric utility company. Today, we serve 3.3 million customers in Michigan with both gas and electric in the regulated side of the business. But we also have companies from coast to coast in 26 states across the country in our non-regulated arm. And that includes midstream pipeline, uh, natural gas storage, renewable energy power development, and a number of other energy-related businesses. So we're now one of the top Fortune 500 diversified utilities in the country and uh, very proud of it. Can you talk about that? transition from public policy, working in the Michigan Senate, running the Federal Affairs Office in Washington, D.C. at DTE Energy, to taking on this new role, being Vice President of Public Affairs and also chairing the DTE Energy Foundation. How did your background working with policymakers make you a good fit for that role? I think we have to look first at the company's aspiration and how it developed. DTE has an aspiration to be the best operated energy company in North America and a force for growth and prosperity in the communities where we live and serve. And that aspiration really came out of the 2008-9 recession in Michigan. With Michigan being the auto industry capital of the world, it hit Michigan harder than any of the other 50 states. I mean, left and right businesses were shutting down. DTE's business was also hit very, very hard. And Jerry Anderson, who was our president about to become CEO at the time, made a decision to place his bet on the employees of DTE. And he came to us with a very open heart and made it very clear that we were going to have to use every skill set we had and figure out a way creatively to make this work without laying off 
or furloughing, doing anything to a single employee at DTE. It was a very large commitment he made on his part, and he asked a lot of his people. And the beautiful thing, Brad, is that it worked. The company really did come through very strong. And as a result of that, the entire culture of the company changed within the year. And about four years ago, Jerry Anderson, CEO, takes a look and says, you know, we're not really giving the same amount of dedicated rigor, focus, diligence to the second half of our aspiration that we give to the first. And so he determined that we would build out this public affairs team, which I now have the great, great, great honor and privilege of leading. And it has our foundation, which I think you've mentioned because I chair the board of the foundation. It has an outreach team and it has a project management office for what we have developed as all of the initiatives that we call internally our force for growth. So uh, it has many pieces and it's a fabulous job. Why did my skill set fit? Because it's about relationship building, because it's about now implementing policy as opposed to so much creating it, but taking what is and making the most of it to lift up community. And so it wasn't a very far stretch at all. You know, thinking about Jerry Anderson's view of being a, a force for growth and prosperity, I think that is abundantly clear in this partnership that you guys are working on with Detroit Public Schools. Can you tell me a little bit about that program and uh, just what it is that you're doing? It's a partnership that we have formed with the Detroit Public Schools Community District and nonprofits in Southeast Michigan and businesses in Southeast Michigan. It takes everyone. Uh, I love one of our partners, Reverend Dr. Wendell Anthony, who has a big church in Northwest Detroit. He's the pastor of, but he's also the president of the Detroit branch of the NAACP. And he's very fond of saying it takes a village. You know, COVID-19 hit and Detroit has been hit exceedingly hard, exceedingly hard. It's hard to talk about even sometimes because all of us now know, we all know people who have died. We all have friends and family who've been affected. If you're in Detroit, you are impacted one way or the other. And what we saw was that our school kids in Detroit were, were impacted harder than anybody else. It was kind of like the recession of 08, 09. So the kids are sent home from school. And in Detroit, 90%, 90% of the students don't have a digital uh, electronic device, a computer, a laptop, an iPad. They don't have that. And or they don't have high-speed internet. So what we knew was that Detroit was we think it is the least connected city in the country. I'm, I've never seen the statistics that prove that it is the least connected urban center, but that's what we're told. So through our Force for Growth Committee, we brought this problem to uh, Jerry Norcia, our CEO, and said, we think this is one we should try to tackle. These, these kids have been sent home and they have no way to do online learning. Detroit kids went home with a packet. 
you know, a paper packet. And we just wanted to do something about that. So thus we started. There are 51,000 students in the Detroit Public Schools Community District. So we have worked to figure out exactly which kind of electronic device would serve all of the platforms needed for online learning from kindergarten through 12th grade. Some of the other big businesses in town uh, were pitching in on this. We figured out the best device at the best price and procured them. And then we had to tackle this problem of kids are not connected to the internet. So what we did is put as a fundraising goal enough dollars that these devices will come loaded with LTE internet capability and this coalition of funders will be purchasing six months of free high-speed internet that's built into the device. And during that six-month period of time, we'll be employing a group. It's a nonprofit called Human IT. And Human IT will be providing support to all of the families to move them over to a hardwired high-speed internet connection at a very low price because there are programs the federal government has put in place that subsidize these programs. So it's a long-term sustainable solution. As I think about the logistics, complicated to pull off. Um, you know, you talk about all these partners, right? Whether it be the internet service provider that you're working with, the uh, the company that's producing the laptops, the IT department at the schools, then distributing all these things. Can you tell us a little bit about how that worked? Well, there are many layers and it's a very large uh, project to manage. So the city of Detroit itself had been working very diligently over the past year with all of the carriers trying to build out the infrastructure in Detroit so that there could be high-speed internet connection, right? I think I said a few minutes ago, least connected urban center in America. We believe that Detroit will be the most connected urban center in America. Uh, and I really have to give a lot of credit to the mayor's office for the work they had been doing on this digital inclusion, work with all the carriers to try to get to this sort of perfect marriage of circumstances where if that work had not been done, our work uh, would maybe not be possible for, in a sustainable way because we could purchase six months of internet connectivity over satellite, but we can't indefinitely pay for satellite service for all 51,000 DPSCD kids. To me, it's exactly what you want these programs to be, a shot in the arm that gets people started, right? sets up a, a platform that people can succeed and then other people fold in. So I applaud your efforts. It's a really well thought out and well-designed plan. I am so proud of it. So proud to work for a company with leaders like Jerry Anderson and Jerry Narcia who say, hey, that's a big bodacious thing, but why can't we take that on? Why can't we get government, nonprofits, business leaders to come together and take on this you mentioned something I want to I want to come back to though. There are two really wonderful things that are happening here. In addition to the the uh, students being able to learn online, that's so important. These devices will be the property of the students. They will go home, and where there are adults in the house, 
And we totally believe and embrace the fact that it will not just be the student using the device. Now you'll have parents and guardians who will be able to get their GED, apply for work, do all kinds of learning, have access to telemedicine, and every other kind of access with an internet that you and I just completely take for granted. But when you are not connected and you've never had this at your fingertips, you don't understand the power it brings to you to improve your life. This summer's youth employment program is going online. So the Grow Detroit's Young Talent program has told us, if not for you taking this project and making it real and getting those devices into kids' hands by the summer, there would be no online, or excuse me, there would be no youth employment in the summer of 2020. So this has all kinds of both short-term and long-term ramifications. As you think about this program going forward, do you foresee DTE continuing to engage with the schools for laptop programs on a sort of longer term basis? Or do you see other kind of foundations following in the line and, and taking your lead on this and ensuring that that's something students have access to? The short answer is DTE is co-leading with the district itself, of course. We don't see project management as receive devices, deploy devices, done. We see this as deploy devices, track student engagement, track adult engagement, track uh, whether you succeeded in getting those 35,000 homes hardwired, track what happens to the individuals involved as this project unfolds. I mean, it's not just DTE's foundation, but it's, it's uh, multiple players here. And it includes the mayor's office. And obviously, central to that will always be the school district itself. I understand you've worked with the faith-based community as yes. well on this project. Can you tell me a little bit about that partnership? We really just started probably 10 years ago working with the pastors around town who wanted to work with us. And it was very much at that particular point in time about helping them to help their own constituents to receive energy assistance. I mean, that's how the connection began. And it's just grown from there. We rely on them. They rely on us. One of the, the most important things we've done in the last uh, month here is put on a series of public service announcements from the pastors, by the pastors, telling the folks in Detroit how to keep themselves safe. We do love our partnership with our faith partners, and it's grown to quite a large number of, and all denominations, by the way, all denominations in Southeast Michigan. Well, it's important to note that that's a relationship that you built long ago. And so you're using these distribution channels that you already have established, right? You're not exchanging business cards amid the crisis. You, you know these people and are engaged with them. So therefore, they, they trust you and are willing to share that important message. What advice do you have for others, for peers, maybe other electric companies or frankly, other companies in general that want to look at engaging in a program like this? Well, we all know that you don't make a friend when you need one. 
So that's kind of the, where it would start. But I think what DTE did very successfully was put a real laser focus on community work and what it means. So what it means to your customers, what it means to your employees, what it means to community, because at the end of the day, all of that comes back to the benefit of the shareholders. And you can't disconnect any one of the four pieces, employees, customers, community, shareholder. They really flow one to the other. We hope that you found this to be an informative 15 minutes, and we look forward to bringing you additional expert insights about the intersection of energy policy and COVID-19. To learn more about the electric industry's response to COVID-19, visit www.eei.org. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts by searching for The Current and We Stand for Energy.